Exactly why the hell is America's public transportation so terrible? That's today's big question, and my guest is Nicholas Duggan Bloom. He is the author of the subtly titled new book, The Great American Transit Disaster. Nicholas is a professor of urban policy and planning at Hunter College. He is the author of a bunch of books, including Public Housing That Worked, The Metropolitan Airport, and How States Shaped Postwar America. He's also the co-editor of the prize-winning Public Housing Myths and Affordable Housing in New York. Uh, This new book, The Great American Transit Disaster, out now, is a deep dive into how we got here. And importantly, where I've really understood for the first time through Nick's overwhelming evidence that, as he puts it, transit divestment was a choice rather than destiny, uh, with a lot of actors involved. So what's important to take away here before we get going is that willful divestment over the past 100 years to purposefully build out our car culture today drives a full third of our greenhouse gas emissions. So obviously we all drive, we get it, undoing it won't be an easy or simple task. Uh, But the good news is there, like most of our problems, is there are choices we made and we can make different ones. And there are multi-solving opportunities everywhere for not only uh, less racism and fewer emissions, but for more and better housing everywhere, for better and more plentiful transportation options that are safer, um, and for healthier bodies and minds. Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quint Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. In these weekly conversations, I'm so lucky to take a deep dive with an incredible human like Nick, who's working on the front lines of the past and the future to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. Along the way, uh, you and I are going to discover tips, strategies, and stories, and a lot of evidence you can use to get involved, to understand problems, and to undo them, to become uh, better and more effective for yourself, and to help us unfuck this entire thing. So please enjoy my conversation with Nick. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for hopping on. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be here. We're the plan today is to read your book line by line, page by page to people. <laughs> How long do you think that might take? Uh, One hundred twenty thousand words. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. But <laughs> I don't know if you saw this week, um, and I'm totally forgetting the gentleman's name. The gentleman who edited all of Caro's uh, books about Moses and Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah. He passed away this week, and they were telling the story about how they, uh, the first draft of... The Power Broker? Might have been The Power Broker, or it was the first... Lend- the point was the first draft was a million words, and they cut 400,000 <laughs> words out, and you're just like, oh my God. This was longer. I should warn you, this book was longer, and my editor did go to me, and he said, you know, we didn't give you this much, like, uh, this much runway for this thing. You got to bring it down. So I did. And it was better for it, I have to say. It's fantastic. You showed your work, and that really matters. Look, there's yeah. a time for fluff, and there's a time for not. And you got yeah. it all out there. And that's well, I mean, one thing, by the way, why it gets longer is it's six cities. So, yeah. you know, if you take that 120,000 words across six cities, like a lot of like traditional history books, you know, it'll be like one city, and they're trying to, we try to prove everything like with one city. But you got to really look at the national picture. So that's why I did six cities. Yeah. And that's really important because obviously, our cities are very different. Like this is just a complicated country and, right. and all right. those things, they're all moving goalposts and changing over time. And the demographics changed entirely and they all very different geographies mm-hmm. and all this different stuff, but also it just gives it context, you know, in yeah. my sense. So when I look at things like 
So we're working with a group to try to write some very basic policy stuff that is transplantable across uh, local cities and towns based on, so in France, they basically, which it's easier, it's a little more homogenous, more homogenous. One of their climate things is any parking lot over 80 spots has to have solar over it now. That's the deal. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at that going, okay, adapt that to, it's never going to pass federally, clearly, right? And, and even on the state level, it's tough. But how can we do that in towns and cities, but also look mm -hmm. at big box stores? Like, okay, mm -hmm. any roof over this size? Because the centralized solar and stuff is just going to be more difficult lift. So how do we build these things, but also work on it with transmission so that we can look at these things and go, yes, every city and town is differently and every situation is different. But but it's doable. That's yeah, doable. doable. You can look. Like, you can look at zoning law. Was the same totally. thing in the '20s. They they came up with a kind of the the national government, the federal government came up with a model, you know, legislation, and then you know it was adapted uh, by different totally. states, and then all the local governments followed from those states. So definitely doable to have successful. Yeah, it's just like how do we how do we give people like a, a, a I don't want to say like lowest common denominator, but like these are the ten things you can take to your city council to at least start the conversation. You know, because it's pretty tough for regular folks to walk into these things and say, like, what do I say? Like, what? much less what mm -hmm. is the most effective way to get my foot in the door? So mm -hmm. anyways, yes, it's helpful to show six cities over 120,000 words. <laughs> I thought it was great. So, Nick, we yeah. ask everybody one question to get started. It's a little ridiculous, but I usually get pretty great answers. So the question is, why are you vital to the survival of the species? I encourage you. <laughs> Why am I personally vital? Personally, uh, that's right. You got to be bold and honest here. <sighs> okay. Well, certainly this is a clarion call. You know, the last week or two in New York area, for instance, uh, we had just a really frightening wake-up call about the impacts on our quality of life uh, with the smoke you know, from the Quebec fires. And, you know, you can look at, not for nothing, but 100 years of auto-oriented, you know, development with no op, very few options for transit really developed in the United States. That is a direct contributor, right, to whether we have more smoke-filled days. And there, there's no question about it, especially because transportation has become one of the leading sources of of greenhouse gas emission in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So to the extent I can rally people <laughs> to, you know, uh, invest in transit, even at this lowest point, right? Because actually what we see is, I think it's just like this really important moment, right? And they, they've had before with transit in the, like the 1940s and 50s. It's at the crisis moment is when you invest, right? Because when you're down, that's when you can rebuild from there, yeah. It is, and we're getting pretty low. Things are orange everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, literally the sky is orange, yes. It's not ideal, and it, it is helpful to finally have someone write sort of the definitive take, almost in a way that, and again, not to diminish your work, and in a way we can go, look, look, this is settled now. Let's let's take what we can to learn from it mm -hmm. and apply that going forward instead mm -hmm. of constantly arguing about the why of how we got right. here and the how right. of God we are. Here's how it is. Here's how it went across the six most applicable cities, and, and let's move forward, you know? Yeah. Because there's... Again, I just spent 15 years in Los Angeles. I sat there and had to deal with them expanding the 405 for yeah. what, however long that took. It was completely yeah. insane. That's how I got to my mother-in-law's house. It was, yeah. it was crazy. As much of a nightmare is, as Los Angeles is, public transportation-wise, 
you look at something like Atlanta and you go, oh yeah, LA's a paradise. LA's got a, a solid, you know, bus systems, slow, but it has it. They are expanding their um, their rail network. I mean, not as many people are using it as possible, but from what I understand, yeah. their bus system has come back pretty strong overall. Yeah. So uh, there is opportunity. Yeah. I wanted to share a brief story to kind of get us to, to mm-hmm. where we're going here. So again, about 15 years ago in Los Angeles, I had just lived in York and Spain and London and was raised here. There's no real public transportation. I mean, there's horses that walk by occasionally, but my wife throws a birthday party. My future wife throws a birthday party. And I don't recall who I was talking to, which is probably important because I keep telling everyone this story. And I don't remember the context of the conversation, except for that it was about the pluses and minuses of public transportation and how much I enjoyed using them. Mm -hmm. And all I remember is at the end, she said, But then when you get off the subway, you'd have to walk to where you're going. (laughs) And I thought of that immediately because in the intro to your book, you said, and I'll quote here, transit agencies go through the motions of printing schedules and deploying buses or trains, but their service has become irrelevant to most Americans. And that's just the thing. In many of our big cities, again, you talked about six of them and, and, and the National Outlook, public transportation might be an option. And in a couple, it's even popular. But in some of those, and in many others, it's actually just that. It's like not even a consideration for so many. It's maybe one or 2%. More people are often walking or biking in many American cities. Which is great. But (laughs) we're not against that. (laughs) Right. No, we need all of the things. But so I wanted to actually start with this part, which I'm I'm curious about. We're going to take this deep dive into why things are the way they are. But now, Mm -hmm. In 2023, which is not really what your book is about, how do you feel like public awareness and perception might actually be any part of the problem at all? Hmm. Oh, that's a good one. So, I mean, one is I do think there are improvements in public awareness of the value of transit uh, in the last few years. And I actually think social media has been very good in bringing a new awareness for and also a tool for transit advocates uh, and sort of that. On the other hand, right, transit has a number of kind of built-in problems, like most public institutions. For one thing, they have press offices. That's not press mm-hmm. offices are a big problem because if anything goes wrong, right, you know, it's an easy story. It's an easy article for the kind of uh, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, uh, nighttime reporting. So you get basically anyone who's not riding transit gets the worst possible takes on transit, some in some cities every day. So, you know, even though in a city like New York, between January and April this year, 90-some people have been killed in, in car-related accidents and 19,000 injured, right? Mm-hmm. That is a kind of a statistic and, and a kind of um, a situation that is not easily reportable. If a train derails, if somebody's held up, if there's an issue right on transit, that's like a this very kind of like sensational moment. And you fill right a year of sensational moments on transit. And good luck. Good luck getting people in there. Yeah. I mean, so that's one. You know, that, that's the, the image is not there. The other, you know, there are other image issues, I think. You know, who the who of riding transit in so many American cities, uh, primarily non-white populations riding transit in many American cities, waiting for buses and you know, bus stops that have no like shade protection, um, you know, delayed buses and service and so forth. And for a very long time, since transit was disinvested in the 1940s and 50s in the U.S., 
you know, transit was slower, you know, in most American cities and less reliable than having a car. And so that's another, I, I think people just kind of like experience, like they see, they don't see a lot of transit and the transit that, that they see in reality is often, you know, one bus here and there. And they don't think to themselves, oh, you know, yeah, you know, I could do that. You know, I, I could I could ride that bus, right? But if you see, you know, if you're like in most American suburbs where most Americans live, maybe they see a bus that, I don't know when, maybe not ever, you know, like yeah. once an hour. Whereas you go to even a place like Canada, you go to a Toronto or a place like that, they got buses going all over their suburbs and places like that. So I think between the kind of media framing as, you know, transits, this horrible, dangerous thing, and look at what COVID, you remember those early COVID memes and things like oh, yeah. that about transit? It was like, everyone's getting it on, you know, because it started, you know, so much started in New York and it's like, you're going to get it in, you know, transit. So that media narrative was, you know, the danger. Transit is fundamentally dangerous. And then the other side of it, which is that people don't have any other countervailing information. And what they see is often not very positive. The media is the worst. We're aware of that. <laughs> but it is also interesting. It's, it is one of those... And again, having, I was, you know, lived in all these transit happy places and, and, and used it and it was fantastic. And then spent all this time in Los Angeles. And then <laughs> it's one of the, almost one of those things, like how do you get a job? Because experience begets experience, but how do you get experience if no one will give mm -hmm. you the job? And I remember a new soccer team started in Los Angeles and they play, I don't know how much time you've spent there, if at all, but they, uh, they built this brand new stadium. Yeah. It's fantastic. The so so far stadium. Uh, a different one. Oh, That's the football team. Ones, this is the soccer team, sorry. the LAFC. It's you're the worst. You're the worst. <laughs> well, there's a transit story related to SoFi too. Oh God, I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Talk about knocking down 700,000 homes. So they played down near USC okay. and I remember I got season tickets and I was really excited. And then I realized I was like, Driving down there is going to be a huge pain in the ass. Getting out of there is going to, I mean, Dodger Stadium, it's a nightmare. I was like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. And I realized there's actually a red line stop not too far from where I lived. I couldn't quite e-bike there mm. without dying, but I could drive and park there and I could take the red line and I could switch and I could go there. And I was like, mm. I've been here for like 12 years and I've never done this, but yeah. is it going to work? And I remember taking it and they designed it to their credit so that you walk in, you go past the science museum and you go through the Rose Garden, you walk up to the stadium and then you walk back out and you go and they got cops directing everybody to the subway yeah, yeah. and it's super great. And I was like, this is what it could be. It's so great, but it's yeah. really easy to look at a map again, like Los Angeles, just the subway and the buses have gotten better and go like, well, this doesn't go anywhere near my home. Why would I ever even try it? Right. I mean, that's the, when you, when you look at American cities, you you have a better chance of getting to a stadium <laughs> on a yeah. rail line right. in the U.S., because there is, and, and that has to do with the politics behind transit, right? Which is that if you're going to kind of like sell, uh, you know, a very expensive transit investment very often, it's kind of regional. And it's like most suburbanites never ride transit. So you're like, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to run this transit by the stadium, right? Or by this big hospital complex or, you know, like these these major sites, even though, quite frankly, although soccer might be better, I don't know how heavy the season is, but you won't get a lot of use like on a daily basis. Oh, sure. Football you get this like sort of episodic. Right. But I will say this, baseball stadiums are better. You know, they have actually they a lot of games. They are actually pretty good. But the football stadium ones, which you'll just see all across the country, you'll see the light rail running to the football stadium. It's like, well, you know, I don't even know how many games that is at home, but it's not many. It's a nightmare. As you point out, it absolutely can be done. You can think about it. It's not cheap. It's got to be subsidized, and you know, that's how it goes. So let's talk a little bit about why this conversation is so important besides just public transportation is great and driving is a nightmare. 
anyone listening and killing to this, the planet right and yeah planet. Well, exactly i mean anyone listening to and this understands that smog greenhouse gas emissions of every kind coming off tires tires yes off uh, water pollution just blew through all the non-white neighborhoods with highways yeah like you said traffic violence is a nightmare mm. these are choices we've made and right. what you did is you directly took on this idea, and it's legendary whenever you walk around Los Angeles, which is car companies killed this utopian right. public transit place. And your point was it really was about us. It was about city and state leaders and mm -hmm. planners and voters saying, we're not going to do it, and we're not definitely not going to pay for it. And I'm very right. interested in these levers of power like we were discussing offline across sort of the portfolio of what we talk about here. Yeah. Because our most effective avenues of change are going to be the same levers. So you kind of highlighted three sort of tent poles and then illustrated them across the cities of, of why mm -hmm. things went down the way they did. And I kind of want to reverse the order you've got them in the book and start with white flight. So yeah. as far as I understand from your book, and again, you tried to make it pretty clear, transit was pretty darn white for a long time. Yes. And then it became less so, and that's seemingly where a lot of these problems began. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Before the, the major era of white flight in the 1940s and 50s, you know, your average transit rider in an American city was a white worker working, maybe middle class, riding streetcars, buses, electric trolley coaches, and so forth. So when riding, you know, when we talk about, it's basically the, the sort of high point of American transit goes from really the 1880s uh, to the 1920s and 30s. You know, it was a white phenomenon. And around what's really interesting about that era, right, is that that's when you get this whole kind of neighborhood complex of the kind of white ethnic neighborhoods that grew up around transit, whether they're rapid lines or streetcars, trolley coach lines of stores and businesses and so forth that grew up around those areas. As white people left these neighborhoods, though, as the neighborhoods, basically as African-Americans migrated north or migrated to cities in the south, white residents left those neighborhoods behind uh, for either kind of more suburban type development within the city limits or the suburbs themselves. And because they maintained, even though they were leaving, the white populations maintained political power into the 1960s in most American cities. And that's crucial because... It was very clear from the 1930s to the 1960s that the private transit companies were basically bleeding the systems dry. And that the only way to save this whole apparatus, right, of good mm -hmm. transit would be to either subsidize the private companies, right, or basically take over, have municipal ownership, which was not unknown. Uh, at the time, and the white power structure in these cities during this time basically said, we're not doing it. The white voters who were dominant in this period, as there was this era of transition, but it was still white dominated, they had no interest when asked to vote for bonds for transit, they rejected them. What happens is as transit's ridership shifts, because the neighborhoods, the African-American neighborhoods were the ones that had the most transit, right? They were really set up well for transit. As those areas became African-American, the private companies that were running the good transit there began disinvesting steeply in their transit uh, operations. And they didn't also extend them to the suburbs where these white people were moving with the cars and so forth. What you end up with is a steeply declining, first private and then public resource in what were increasingly primarily African-American neighborhoods. Even after a while, you know, anyone, even African-American residents abandoned transit in so many cities. If they could get cars, they did. 
that's a really crucial part of this story. As neighborhoods were disinvested, you also had fewer riders available in the neighborhoods that had the most transit infrastructure. You can look at like, the way I've got these maps, like of West Side of you know, mm-hmm. Baltimore and Atlanta and places like that, which basically you can see that the neighborhoods that had the most riders were the East and West Sides, which had increasingly an African-American majority population. And, you know, between 1960 and 2000, they also lose a lot of their riders too in that period. Well, it's a flywheel, right? And you talked about, and we'll get into like how these really were forced to be these pay-as-you-go systems. And you get white voters and people in power who were, who stopped writing it and thus and then refused to subsidize right. it. Exactly. And then it starts to fall apart and only black people are using it. And then it becomes just a shittier mode of transportation because it's not kept up with. And so fewer people are using it. And so fewer people are paying for it. And it's still not being subsidized even more. And then you've got right. examples like, I remember being so excited to highlight this point in uh, one of your parts on Atlanta. Obviously, ger- gerrymandering is not, it's obviously such a huge piece of the puzzle today with everything yeah. we're dealing with. And you made this point about Atlanta annexing Fulton County, which was very white, and them not only not building out there, but it effectively added, what was it, like 600,000 new white voters to the, yeah. to the role. Yeah, to maintain the white majority yeah, in the city. Yeah, so, and, and white majority in a landscape that was increasingly autocentric, right? Because the other part of that, right, is, and you and you hit you indicated that too, is that every American city, almost, right, these new emergent white, either urban areas through annexation or these white suburbs, right, were areas where the car was dominant. So good luck, right? You know, getting like high quality transit out of drivers. It's very difficult to do. You know, I, it's it's a pretty heavy load because their transit needs are taken care. Of. I mean, their transportation needs are taken care of without transit. They don't need it. And then the city governments in this period were just totally all in on not just highways. By the way, you know, you'll see a lot. You go to a lot of American cities. You see a lot of parkways. Right or why street widening was big in Atlanta. You mentioned that um, they recreate either the central cities to be more car friendly, mm-hmm. or they create whole areas where you move so frictionless, you know, through areas except at rush hours or places like you know like that. It's so frictionless for sort of everyday life on the car that to exchange right the frictionlessness of a car uh, with that of transit. It's asking a lot. And it's such a crucial period for that, too, because obviously we know what a nightmare traffic is now as a, as a personal and as, as a systemic oh, yeah, experience oh, greenhouse gases. But yeah. as, you, as you talked about, there were all these beautiful parkways. It went from a Sunday drive to we're going to use <laughs> yeah. these for transportation. Great. Now yeah. we're going to widen them and we're going to plow yeah. down even more stuff. And yeah. that was the same period when you've got segregation coming apart in some ways Mm -hmm. and in some cities, but not all of them. And when you're defunding these things. Right. When you integrate transit in Atlanta, people are all, you know, a lot of the white people, I mean, that's another factor. It's not just the disinvestment itself or movement, but when in the South you had the mandated integration of transit, that's another factor, right? Driving whites uh, further out, right? And the way they protect themselves, right, is through primarily through zoning. Right. They create environments which, because of the socioeconomic differences, both then and now, between a large portion of the white and black population, basically create these large, very expensive homes 
or comparatively expensive homes. Very hard to serve single-family home areas effectively. Not impossible, but very hard to serve them effectively with transit, certainly not with unsubsidized transit. And so they create a whole world, right, that is transit hostile, I guess I would say, that helps protect kind of the privilege uh, that white people had achieved uh, in basically, you know, being financed for these new homes and and so forth through the federal government and also private enterprise. And it's not just the residential part, which is important, but yeah. at one point you described, a, you know, a, a relatively early Chicago where, and, mm-hmm. and I think I have the quote here, again, this sort of stuck with me with my Los Angeles experience where you said, Long neighborhood commercial strips parallel streetcar and elevated lines and stops, with notable clusters as diagonal cross streets, where 75% of neighborhood communities and shopping centers developed around transfer points or terminals of transit routes. Now, I thought about the, again, about 15 years where I lived right near Ventura Boulevard in Los Angeles, which I think by some accounts, and it might be a myth, is the longest contiguous stretch of commercial real estate on the planet, I think. Yeah. And there is no protected bus lane. There is no subway. There is no streetcar. There isn't even a protected bike lane. And you just look at that and go, what? Like, how? And there's residences, uh, you know, on either side of it. You've got kind of the hills on one side. But again, you read about what the most effective way is. And this was so much of what the zoning situation was in California the past 10 years is allowing upscaling in transit-defined areas where it already is to try to improve existing systems, which I know you talked a lot about, wasted money. Yeah, there's that new new legislation allowing for um, residential development all in those commercial districts. Right. Right. It's pretty right. linear. That's a pretty exciting one. Yeah, kind of going back to the Chicago, you know, the pre-zoning right. era. Well, and that's what I mean. It's like I look at that and go, we we learned these lessons so early. This should seem so applicable now. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, then I thought about again your points of, I mean, obviously we need to look. The, the, so many of these problems of ours require what I call the kitchen sink approach or a portfolio approach, which isn't just mm-hmm. like for hunger. It's not just feed people tonight. It's also draft legislation. So there's not as much food waste or, you know, the farm bill, all these different things. But in this case, we clearly need to build new transportation, right? But we also know how enormously expensive that can be. I mean, you look at the Second Avenue subway in New York and in the past 20 years of that, it's unbelievable. Yeah, there's always this like, let's build a line. Right. Let's let's extend out a line and see how that goes. And that'll track people. But what the history of transit tells you is something else. Right. Which is that a line will only prosper. Right. To the extent that development can happen alongside it to basically take advantage of this new amazing piece of infrastructure. And that's why actually the Second Avenue extension, at least in 96th Street, was a pretty good investment because you get a couple hundred thousand people out of it. So that's good. You know, it's a few billion dollars, whatever, six billion that came out. But you're actually getting riders. But you have examples, so many examples after the heyday of transit in our current world. Right. Uh, Basically, since the federal government started paying for this stuff in the 60s, certainly the 70s to today, where basically you have extended extensions of lines, like really nice. Like, honestly, you know, our light rail lines are awesome and they're beautiful and the rest. The problem is that there's no, like you're talking about the kitchen sink, right? It's like, oops, we forgot to zone. <laughs> so right. like, Right, there's nobody there. Uh, there's nobody there, right? And if you do, or we do this like park and ride crap, you know, like where basically people drive their cars there, but that's like, your capacity is pretty limited, right? Sure. You know, a few thousand, maybe you get a few thousand cars in a parking lot if you're lucky, but 
that's tough. And then we don't do the, you know, some cities like Portland did a better job of LA's trying the kind of, and Boston, you know, the feeder bus, right? You, you want to feed the buses in, but if you don't have a bus network, you can't feed people to the transit lines to get them up. So we've done a lot. There's actually been a pretty impressive amount of rail extension in the U.S. Uh, since the 70s. Unfortunately, most of those underperform because they often run through like disused rail corridors or they run through areas that are fundamentally not great transit markets. So you're right, you have to like, you have to deal with the zoning at one time, right? You have to deal with housing discrimination. You have to make sure that there's affordable at night. By the way, if you build all luxury housing, this is the studies have all shown this. If you build a whole bunch of luxury housing with parking underneath it, you don't get a lot of riders. You say, oh, it's transit-oriented development. Um, yeah, it's transit-adjacent, as they say. But like, if everyone could just store their car underneath, right? you don't get that many riders. So you have to make sure that there's working-class housing as part of that as well. And then the other big piece, the all-kitchen-sink thing is, you know, it could be a beautiful rail line, but if that thing shows up like once an hour, forget it. No one's, you know, it's got to be like a six minute headway, maybe 10, right? And like a lot of times a day, if it shuts down at 11, 12 o'clock at night, good luck with that, right? So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things we saw. I believe it was the new Boston mayor who apparently is fantastic. And one of the things I believe, and again, I might destroy this, one of her first things she did was to, I think, keep a lot of the public transit free, like they had incentivized during COVID. And that's great on the one hand, but it seems like the more persuasive argument is we just need more of it. Like you said, these things have to come at a max of 10 minutes. Otherwise, people are going, what am I doing here? Right, free for, for free for for crap. I mean, it doesn't right. help anyone, right? I mean, you can offer people free things, but if I can't get to my job, right, in a reasonable amount of time or pick up my kid or, you know, get on and off, right, free doesn't help, right, that much. I will say this. I mean, I think the fair fare model, right, which Boston is working on and some other cities have done, which is like an income graded piece that, you know, that makes sense. But right, the the free fare model works better in a city like Boston, in essence, already because you have more transit that they preserved. You know, that's that chapters on Boston is like, well, you can talk about free fares when you've gotten to a level of like subsidy that's Pretty unbelievable by American standards. And that's the key, right? Because if <laughs> yeah. you're reducing fares, that means it's yeah. reduced revenue. So it's got to come from somewhere yeah. or you've got shitty service. So right. like you said, it's, you know, we, we seem to be agreement on the kitchen sink approach. Yeah. There are some places where we're starting to see, mm-hmm. like you said, finally in California, some upzoning in a lot of different yeah. ways. We're seeing yeah. in a few places, parking minimums go away, yeah. which is very exciting yeah. to me. But obviously, this is not a revolution yet, but those are really important pieces of the puzzles. They'll have long-term effects, yeah. Do you feel like you're starting to see more subsidization in local and state places? I mean, obviously, state houses are going in two different directions these days. I mean, the, the COVID piece was great from the federal money. I mean, that right. was the only, since the 1970s, is the first time we've had significant federal operating support. And, you know, that made a difference for so many people who need to get to jobs and still do. And it's basically saved transit up to this point. And then we do see, like, California just bailed out uh, Bay Area Transit with some important pieces. New York has just bailed out the MTA at New York State. So the states do have the funding or at least the taxing or other capabilities, congestion charging, whatever it is, to basically put transit on a much more stable basis. So we do see some of that. City government, though, good luck on that. I mean, I, I think they're headed for such big problems, you know, with you know downtown real estate values, with the work from home thing and other stuff like that. I mean, I wouldn't want to depend on 
city governments, and that's one of the problems with free fare so far is that a lot of this is driven by city councils and mayors who are basically going to be facing major financial problems. So if they can get it, I will say this, if you can get a kind of free fare component, like New York's going to do a couple bus lines with the state deal, great, that works, right? Because, you know, basically that's money that's covering, right, this experiment. But if you don't have that, depending on city government will be very difficult. Although that's not to say, you know, a city like San Francisco and Boston, they have had basically local tax revenues, uh, which have gone to support transit for decades and decades. And that has basically helped them in the dips, And the sort of, you know, to basically not have to cut, cut, cut. Because the whole problem is when you start cutting, that's when people start abandoning transit, right? It's like when you can't depend on it, you start thinking, well, it might cost me 30, 40% of my income to have a car, but I need to have a job. I, you know, I, and so they're going to do that. And that's understandable. I empathize yeah, with that. Totally, you know, totally. We have so many choices that have compounded on choices, often on purpose in this country to create systems that are very harmful and inescapable most important being number two there for a lot of folks, right? Whether it's food or air pollution or heat or whatever, or healthcare, whatever it might be. But sometimes there is an alternative. And sometimes that alternative is like, well, then I got to get a car, but it's incredibly unaffordable. Unbelievable now. $700 is the like average. Right. But the point is for some people, it's either like, I don't have healthcare or I do, right? Right. Especially in these states that won't pass, take the federal Medicaid Mm -hmm. money. But in most places you can figure out some version of the car thing, or you don't, and you see people working. And this is my thing that's, you're totally right. I mean, this this office commercial real estate thing is going to be a nightmare at some point. I mean, I was just looking at numbers this week that said in some of these studies, it's like 25, 35% vacancy rates, which is incredible. Right, right. They're going to reassess all that property. interest rates are double what they were, et cetera. But there's also huge numbers of people, though, that need transportation that don't work in these big office buildings, yeah. right? They're in service jobs and things like that in these hourly jobs all around cities that require things like this. So, you know, there are other institutions that can take a role in this. So, uh, you know, cities obviously don't have a lot of money, but, you know, in most American cities, the biggest employers now are nonprofit hospital and university systems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I would say nonprofit in quotes, they somehow have millions of dollars for their executives and so forth. What they can do to support transit in this case, a lot of their service workers, like you mentioned, and there are some that do it. MIT does it. The universities in Pittsburgh do it. There are other cities. They can buy transit in bulk, that is passes, for their workers mm-hmm. and give them to them for free. Because currently, the, the transit benefit it can be used for parking or transit. Your $300 a month tax-free withdrawal, it can be used for parking or transit. So you know what a lot of these institutions have done. They've built massive, massive parking complexes, yep. right? I'm just enormous. And if they said, you know, you know, we're going to give you, you know, free transit pass, uh, that could be a game changer, I think, for many cities. But they'd have to, in the all in the kitchen sink thing, they'd have to work with a transit agency to make sure that there's sufficient service, that people would be able to really use it uh, to go to the kind of dispersed metropolis uh, where it is. So, I mean, that's one example of something that can be done. There are, I mean, there are examples of cities which are building kind of clusters of housing along their transit lines. But again, you know, that has to be done with an eye to not providing all this parking as part of it. So I do think the parking, and Henry Graybar's book is great. You know, I think this is the, the parking component is crucial. If, if you provide subsidized, you have subsidized cheap parking competing with subsidized transit and 
you know, because of how Americans now live, mostly subsidized parking is going to win. That's a tough one. It the is. key is, oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. I was just uh, yeah. agreeing with you. I mean, I think of obviously Paris is one example. They've just been yeah. nibbling and nibbling and nibbling. Yeah, away take away the, the side, the street parking. Like, because yeah. it, it really is supply and demand on all these different yeah. fronts, from the public transportation to parking to highways to housing and all these things. And if you make just start it, make it away difficult. where you can drive. Yeah, if you make you got to make it worse and worse. And you also got to sit tight when people scream. Hey, everyone. It's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place, really, for our most dedicated shit givers. A place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds, from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research, and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community. And we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. Yeah. And that's what New York did for a long time. I remember, um, oh God, what was the transportation commissioner when I was there? Khan, I believe. Janet City Khan, yeah. Holy shit, did, were people so mad at this woman. Yeah, I mean, mad. oh my God. And now look at it. I mean, they've made just enormous, obviously yeah. congestion pricing has taken like 20 years to get going, but yeah. they have, it has made a difference what they've done. It has, and we still have millions of like on-street free parking. And, you know, if they start pulling that <laughs> or charging yeah. for it, yeah, you can luck. fund transit easily. And some studies have done, you could easily fund transit. Uh, with that. But it will take a kind of political courage that is difficult for people who have to answer to voters. But it also is going to require, and this is again something I harp on a lot, like the subsidies part really sticks with me because yeah. among the many things I try to help already our audience understand when they say like, what can I do? It is often to start with understanding what we subsidize and to what extent. And on the other hand, the costs we still and historically just steadfastly refuse to even calculate, much less right. pay, right? Well, Massachusetts, there's a study from Harvard Kennedy School. They, 
was it $64 billion a year in auto-related costs to the whole system of maintaining auto infrastructure? I mean, I don't Sure, you know, but, but that doesn't it, even include massive. the pollution part and the health part and all of these different things. Like, we refuse to calculate externalities for anything we do. I mean, that's why the SEC has taken so long on, on making one single rule about this stuff. Yeah. You know, so I wonder, because, uh, you know, as you pointed out, San Francisco and Boston and New York, imperfect, obviously, but there's some examples there of maybe some things we can learn from as far as mm -hmm. what small or big cities, hopefully subsidized by the state, because like you said, city councils can be a nightmare. Like what is what are transferable lessons there that we can use as we try to pick this thing apart? Like where did where are taxes effective? Where do they come from? You know, I do think that the transit advocates in those cities pretty early had a pretty good, had a very good idea and they stuck to it of what transit offered in terms of social equity or, you know, basically that that was a really important, like you look at, talk about New York, right? You know, the subway is a form of transportation, but it was also a form of reform, which was we want to get people out of the tenements, right? In horrible conditions. So we're going to build this subway. We're going to subsidize the, these private companies to basically get people out. And, you know, that is, that's crucial, right? So have a vision, right? Um, and the same in, you know, in Boston, the idea was like the working class needs this, right? We have to basically subsidize it because most people can't afford a car. That's back in the twenties, right? Um, and San Francisco, of course, had left-wing movements that were very important, the sense of like the greater good that would be served by basically destroying the private transit company with a public alternative, sure. right? And so they had that. They also were unapologetic. And this includes both transit advocates and politicians paying for this out of a sales tax, a property tax element, uh, whatever it is, or state tax, that this was just the cost of maintaining these systems over time. You have to, you never should apologize, uh, for this, because it's a round, it's a small, the numbers sound big, you know, like millions sure, here, or, right? Yeah. right? The area, they sound big because you're serving many people across in one system and they aren't dispersed and things like that. But the truth is they, they were, you know, in these cities, transit has never been one of the big cost factors compared to schools or policing or whatever else these cities were doing. So I do think you have to be unapologetic. I think you do have to compromise and make deals very often with the suburbs, so sometimes you do end up with systems which, you know, maybe it's not exactly fair. You know, suburbs do get something in it, you know, sure. uh, but then the city gets that funding. But I do think aiming for what's really, really important, right, is operating funding. And I think that gets often overlooked because, you know, this whole idea of building the shiny thing, it attracts city leaders, it attracts suburban leaders. Oh, this like fancy line, whatever. But what matters most in my telling, and I think of my research and my findings, right, is does that bus show up or that tram show up every five minutes? And it can be the oldest damn tram you've ever seen, right? You go to yeah. Boston, they're they're running like 1940s, 50s equipment yeah. on this one line, the Mattapan line. You just keep modernizing it. And like in, in San Francisco, they ran these old trolley coaches. Boston, I when I lived there years ago, there were old trolley coaches, like the electric trolley, like ele electric buses, which are now hot, right? Sure. You know, these have been running for almost, you know, 100 years in some, almost right. in some Don't cases. Don't tell anybody. It's super old technology. It's super old tech, right? Yeah. But, you know, that's the key. You know, like it doesn't have to be fancy. Just it just to has to be there. There. And there's work. nothing worse than like a cold night and the thing doesn't show up. And you know what? If you got to wait outside for a cold, beautiful, you know, light rail line, nobody wants that. 
and you want you that old bus shows up and it kind of you know goes along like a July. Who cares? Get me there. That's what I want. And that's operating. That's operating. And I understand. And again, having been in, in New York and I was in London when they started congestion pricing, like I was sort of the Forrest Gump of bouncing around all these places trying to pull it together. Yeah. Los Angeles gets the Olympics and they go, how the hell are we going to redo all of our transportation in time for this? It's funny. I was just thinking when you're talking. It's a ridiculous analogy, but my children got a dog three years ago and they thought this was really great. And I was like, well, now we have to take care of it. You have to feed yes. it and yes. you have to clean up the poop. And they're <laughs> I like, that same one. I do that too. Whoa. And I'm like, guys, that's the deal. Like you can't just, it's not just the shiny puppy. That's great. But like, you gotta walk it. You gotta pick up the yeah. stuff. And they're like grumbling about it. I'm like, well, then I guess we'll get rid of the dog. No, 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 no. <laughs> the, the amount of time to build it is nothing. It pales. Totally. In comparison to the amount of time, you will maintain that system. And unless you have a steady flow of money, whether it's fares or a company, usually it's a combination of fares and subsidies, it's not going to work. And it's obviously that balance is going to be adjustable over time, depending on how it's doing and how much maintenance is required. Are cars aging out over a period of time? How does it amortize? Every city's a little bit different because some got light yeah. rail, some are underground entirely, some buses. But obviously the the combination is is really the key, right? How is it frequent? How is it fair? How is it subsidized? Yeah. And buses, I mean, you can get to a decent bus system pretty quickly compared sure. to rail. Sure. And that's why actually I think it's very exciting now. I think everyone should support bus rapid transit uh, opportunities. I don't know if you've been to Richmond lately, but it's getting a lot of attention for its bus rapid transit. And, you know, what does it do? You know, it's like, sure. you know, it, it's got, you know, its own lanes for part of it. It's frequent service. It's modern, but, you know, it's not too, you don't have to have rails. And that is really, you know, that's sort of the the new thing. And so, and they also have the density around those spots and workplaces. And it's low hanging fruit, you know, relative yeah. to to building new lines. You know, yeah. it's not as sexy, but man, it it really works. So, a friend of mine is working in government and is responsible for paying out some of this infrastructure cash, of which there's a lot. And it's frustrating because you've also got we have all these incremental pieces, and again, there's going to be trade offs, but you've got. Houston getting this $10 billion, I think, highway expansion, right? Sure. And they're demolishing something like a thousand homes. It's a billion degrees there today. I think it's like a hundred billion dollars of the infrastructure deal is going to highway and bridge programs, but it seems to be based on these old models and these old formulas that we haven't adjusted along the way. And it's so hard. It's like when someone, the smaller example, someone buys a gas car now, we're keeping cars for something like 12 years now, the longest we ever have. Right. And it's, or someone putting in a furnace again instead of a heat pump, you're going like, well, that's one that's just now locked in for another 12 years. Right. Like, how do we work around those things that are going to be big setbacks? <laughs> how do we stop uh, us from like building in another gener a new generation? You've hit it, which is we're building an entire new infrastructure, a car-oriented infrastructure, whether electric or gas. And that's that means basically because electric cars are so expensive at this point, the charging infrastructure is not there. We are locking ourselves in for probably decades, right, of, of the car culture with all that it brings with it. You know, there is money for transit in there, but it's, again, it's for like mostly for new construction, of lines. There is a push to have some of the federal capital money be used for operating. But yeah, I don't know that Americans are serious. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I think it just gets down to that idea that Americans are still in denial about the contribution of the car culture to 
and the Welsh is it really the truck culture because very few people actually drive like cars anymore, but or whatever. But the the contribution of the car culture to the, the climate crisis, and until we pass whatever that point is, you know, people just can't see that. I mean, think about all the ink spilled on electric cars at this point. And, you know, it wasn't even GM and these companies so much, right? I mean, it was, there's this kind of shiny object, like we can do all of this. We can have this sort of utopia without any sacrifice. And that has, I guess, something to do with like American consumer culture more generally. Like, I mean, buses are way better than electric cars. Rail is way better. I mean, but getting people to sort of think about like, taking those things, subsidizing them, it's a big challenge. We probably need a kind of, we do have really good transit advocacy organizations right now, but I would definitely say if there are any funders, hello, of like large foundations, start dumping some money. I mean, look at Bloomberg and smoking and things like that, although. We are really from 15 minute groceries to whatever you want to call it, to going to the emergency room every time we're sick. Like convenience is such a big right. part of right. this country. But it's funny because the driving has also gotten so inconvenient in many cases, but we're not willing to try the alternative because in a lot of ways, the alternative isn't there. And the or it's not better. It's, or it's yeah. not better. And the long-term effort, much less mindset to, or I guess reverse those, long-term mindset, much less effort to actually fix it, to build a better system requires on itself so much effort. There's not a lot of questions here. It's mostly me venting to you, I'm realizing at this point. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. I mean, I, I think that's the... Uh, I want to be clear. There's a lot of wins. There's there's some really great stuff happening. Like you said, there's amazing transit organizations. There's really great supporters. Parking minimums are going away. California passing ADUs and upscaling is great. I will say this, that is not going to yield much for a long time. No, that, you, you're not. You don't get riders very quickly because... You know, you got to change the zoning. You got to get the financing to build the stuff. The people have to move in. They have to realize that it's because they're all going to bring their cars with them initially, right? Sure. So we're looking at 10 to 20 years before you'd really see neighborhoods, I think. I mean, there are a few exceptions, you know, where neighborhoods are already getting dense in some places, but that's pretty limited because so many places have put the parking under these well, and new that's the problem. four over one. If you, you don't know? upzone and take away or at least drastically reduce parking minimums, it's just the same shit. It's the same stuff. It doesn't change anything because it's so convenient. They literally, you can in the, you know, what is it? These new apartment complexes, you can literally drive to your door. So you have the equivalent, like in these ramps, right? You drive like right up to your door. And so it's the equivalent of like a, a vertical ranch house, right? right? Oh it's like, God. you just like, all you have to do is do a couple turns and you pull right up at your house. I don't know how transit competes with that. That's a pretty tough it's sell. It's yeah. Uh, cost wise. I mean, I do think cost is something. I mean, I think the, Although it's deeply subsidized the e-cars and all the rest of it, but I do think the costs of, of you know, was it 700 for an average car payment now? You know, it's unbelievable, right? I think that because income's not keeping up, I, I think there may be more and more people will find themselves not only house poor in the U.S., but car poor. And I sure. think that that, a lot of people who didn't ever think of transit before, like I think about, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, San Francisco's got all these problems now, right? Because all these tech workers aren't there. And I was thinking, well, you know, Transit was going down before the pandemic because the tech workers had so much money. They were like Ubering everywhere and, oh, you know, yeah. like that sort of thing. So it's like, you know, transit is actually, actually coming back a bit in San Francisco. Considering how few people are going into San Francisco's downtown, I'm actually very nicely surprised at how many people are actually riding transit hmm. because it's miserable to drive there. It's miserable to park. It's yeah. extremely expensive to live there. So 
you know what you think? I think I'm going to write transit, right? And so that that you have to get to that like somewhere that that crucial moment, right? That threshold where like people finally go there's something running in front of my house. I don't know what it is. It seems to be a large object and you can get on and pay or not or whatever, right? And I might actually get on that thing and might benefit from it. And I am broke. <laughs> I don't have a lot of money if I don't want to hire paying for it. Or I'm just cheap. Maybe I'm just cheap and I'm tired yeah. of like putting all this money in Elon Musk's you know, hands. It's wild because we often say these things out loud. Again, I remember being in LA, you know, sort of pre-Uber Lyft and people wouldn't take public transportation and it wasn't good enough at that point. They weren't really thinking about it. They hadn't rebuilt a lot of the bus stuff yet. There was no apps to be able to tell when things were coming yeah. and this and that. And, you know, again, this was sort of the time of that question of then I would have to walk to where I was going. And at the same time, you're going, well, you got to drive through traffic. You got to find parking when you get there. You got to yeah. pay for parking. People don't count that time. This has been studied. They don't count that time. They count only that little bridge, like when they're driving, they yeah. don't count the time to your right. car drive, you know, that's sort of the no, law. They don't count the 20 bucks it costs to park at a doctor's office for that. an appointment that takes 15 minutes because healthcare is broken. Different conversation. We won't get yeah. into it. But yeah. it's fascinating because we do need to come to terms a little bit with different imperfect systems that have some friction but are more beneficial to the these greater goals, right? I'll give you a, a metaphor for, or well, not a metaphor, metaphor, but like an example. I don't know. It's really a metaphor. But anyway, I lived in New Orleans before um, Katrina. Uh, and I was helping run a, a program at, at Tulane called the Urban Village. And we brought in somebody from the Army Corps of Engineers to talk about the defense systems for flooding, you know. I remember that the, uh, you know, his laptop was having problems that worried me right there. And in New Orleans at that time, we were all very interested. This was before Katrina. You know, there was a lot of kind of like, well, we don't want these walls around the city in the same way, you know, because it's going to have environmental effects. Uh, it's going to be ugly. We don't want any of this, right? And then Katrina happened. Now I was I moved to New York by then, and the city is flooded. It's decimated, right? And what do they do then? They say, Army Corps of Engineer, what do you need to do, and how much do we need to spend to do this? And I hate to say it, but I kind of think that's how it's going to go with the climate crisis and mass transit, which is that right now we're in this sort of like you know sort of delusion that there's some kind of like no frictionless car oriented like way to get us to like low <laughs> lower emissions even though it's very clear that the complexity of creating all these d-cars and charging them and the road systems and all the rest of it and the tires and all that it's just awful right but we are so enamored with the idea that there's an easy fix or that there's, it's going to happen the way we want it. But that's not what's going to happen. And, and I, when I, those days that happen, like with the, you know, the smog here in New York, but the flooding and Sandy and, you know, when, when, it's, when it's time, there's going to be a lot of hard. I mean, this sounds apocalyptic in a way, but I don't think it is. Like, I think the politicians and everybody are going to have to say, you know, we thought we could do it with electric cars. Right. Or we thought we could do it with this way. But this is it. You know, like we're either going to have a habitable planet. Right. Or not. The research I have seen recently says habitable planet. You don't get there if if every American keeps driving an SUV. It just doesn't happen. Or even a car. You've got to have transit as a component of it. That's it. You just do. And, and again, it's going to take a lot of upfront money and it's going to take ongoing yep. dedicated money and willpower and all these different things. But there's really no way to ignore this is a third of our collective footprint. 
Full right. stop. So yeah. that's a big, big number. Yeah. And when you start yeah. to take that down, it makes a big difference. And it also, and again, separate conversation, but my job as a generalist who is not a scientist or a journalist or any of these things is helping people understand how these things intersect, whether you can you know, assume them from the surface level or not. But we have a loneliness epidemic. And when you were in right. your car by yourself on these commutes, it's not super healthy. And also no. you're not moving and you're more sedentary. Yeah. And we have all these issues that, again, it there are no silver bullets to any of these things. And if they were, we definitely would do them, certainly. But you also want to show people that these are what they call um, multi-solving uh, level opportunities to improve things on a variety of measures, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. very easy to see that all of our pre-existing asthma and other cardiorespiratory, cardiopulmonary yeah. conditions made COVID much more fatal here than it ever needed to be. Like we're an athleisure society that doesn't walk, you know, like everyone's, oh, like, everyone's wearing athleisure yeah. everywhere, right? No this and stuff they're like getting in their cars. Also, yeah, right. Exactly. It's, <laughs> It's like, use your athleisure to go to the transit stop and then ride. It's a hard one. It's hard to break habits. It's hard to break systems. Um, Obviously, these are easier choices for a lot of us than some of us who are otherwise trapped in them. The other piece is, I'll say this, is, you know, for people who, you know, what really has worried me about the abandonment of transit, and I ride transit myself, is that you have basically this, we go kind of back to the racial and social divisions, right? You're not if your world becomes this bubble, right, of kind of, you know, the the suburbs that you're in, you know, where you basically don't share space in a way where people are not serving you in a way, like you're actually sharing an experience, right? Right, where they're not just kind of the service worker or something like you're that. Yeah. I think that, and I think there's some research indicating this, that empathy, right, and your ability to understand what people go through is very different if you actually share space, schools, transit, libraries, like that. And we have not, we're not a terribly empathetic society. So I would say you could, there, there is potential in transit for all those folks who are interested in a more just society, you know, that, you know, riding transit will definitely bring you in contact with people who you maybe don't have contact with every day. And that might be a good thing. Might not be a great thing always. It's not always no, a great it's thing. Not, but... They're all imperfect, but it's 70% of the reason I send my kids who are just wildly privileged to public school. Because I'm like, yeah. good luck. That's that's life. That's what it's like out there. You know? Yeah. Same reason my 10-year-old wants to be a paleontologist. I was like, that's great. And I'm so excited for you, but you're going to be a waiter first because you need to learn how to like <laughs> be in the shit. The and you got to learn yeah. how to like literally work for your money. Yeah. And yes, sir. No, sir. I'm sorry. Yeah. That wasn't. We sound kind of grumpy, I guess. You know, I guess we just had a little like grumpy dads in the, uh, I you mean, know, I'm like got to work. I'm fully that guy. But, you know, I, again, like I said, this has turned into, <laughs> go into ride the bus, all right? fewer yeah. questions. Yeah. Yeah, go drive the bus. How great would it be if you were just like, I mean, I drive one of those F750 <laughs> Raptors, but it's fine. <laughs> No, I mean, look, it, it is a deeply problematic uh, hole we are in that is very complex. But again, I try to, and and, and the listeners get this, uh, we don't shy away from hard conversations here. There's often fun yeah. ones. Again, I always use this example. There's a young woman I talked to recently who has, don't even get me started with how this even begins. She's figured out how to use sound cannons on drones all autonomously linked to push wildfires back. And I was like, listen, I don't have any idea what you're talking about, but this sounds great. And I hope everybody supports you. Like that's, (laughs) that's just insane. It's, you know, I talked to these other, these uh, women scientists a couple years ago who are using, figured out they could use uh, zebra fish to try to fight pediatric cancer. And I'm like, 
that's great. I don't even know where you buy a zebra fish, like much less how you use it for cancer. The, the, yeah. These are incredible opportunities to fix these horrible things. And this is less sexy than those, but at the same time, it fundamentally applies to so many pieces of our society, which is an opportunity. We could tax zebrafish. I mean, that would be like uh, congestion. They need congest- to start paying their fair price. Congestion, congestion zebra. Like, well, there's too many in the... In the- All the zebrafish moved to Texas because <laughs> they didn't want to pay income taxes. It's a nightmare. <laughs> there is some kvetching, obviously, going on, but but I, I think it is, though, like your book, to bring it all the way back around, yeah. it's important to, like, fully reckon with what we the bed we've made and why and how so that we can tear it apart and look at it and go, okay, how do we reverse these choices along the way? Yeah, we, we still live in a small D democracy and you have opportunities to vote for, to put things on ballots and to vote for people who will support these things. And and I've seen it in my own, you know, last few years here. I mean, you look at a state like New York, there's a lot of question whether the MTA would bail out or whether the state would bail out the MTA. Sure. And, you know, because downstate, because New York City was so in for the governor, Governor Hochul, you know what? She delivered. Yeah. Yeah. It was a priority. It was delivered. And that's what you got to do. People got to vote. Where there's transit, they need to vote. And where they're not, well, we'll hope. But. It's one of my favorite organizations is run by a friend of mine, Amanda Littman. It's called Run for Something. And all they do is recruit and support uh, young, progressive uh, state yeah. and local candidates, essentially. And often it's the people who have experienced these things the most. They have been a nurse or they are people who need to ride transit so they can speak right. to what that experience is like and why it matters. And what happens when you start to put those people in office from the ground up? It's not yeah. only do they hopefully graduate to the House of Representatives or whatever it might be, but they can start to affect things on a way that you will feel and you will notice. And we always talk about like, look, you know, Nick, you're not going to stop the jet stream from slowing down here but the climate change is the heat you feel on your back it's the water you drink it's the air right. you breathe and you can actually affect those things and doing it on the local level and the state level really does matter especially for something like transit which historically has been funded in its operations at that level i mean yeah it's a tough lift of the federal level right now to get new operating subsidies uh for transit but there's definitely because of the the, the importance of city economies to regions, it's it's a it's a doable lift, right? It is, and, and everywhere is complex and has its own complexities. And I think about, I've got an Apple note full of like 7,000 links and things I'm gonna eventually sell to where I am now, which is, it seems like small potatoes, but we've got the city of Williamsburg, which is not yeah. very large. It is surrounded by an area called James City County. It's integrated with the world's largest open air museum, Colonial Williamsburg, which yes. is a nonprofit foundation. But 10 feet this way is a state university, the College of William and Mary. Yeah. And all these pieces- Could totally work for transit. Could totally work. And you've already got, again, Colonial Williamsburg is shut down to cars. It's already walkable. You've right. got the College of right. William and Mary campus, great. With but a pedestrian. Between, it's complicated. But every time you pull a string, you find out more things, which is you can go to the city of Williamsburg and say, where's all your protected bike lane guys? And they go, yeah. here's the deal. The largest landowner is a nonprofit foundation, which doesn't pay property taxes. We've got a state university. There's, again, it's Colonial Williamsburg. So there's all these 400-year-old churches that take up land that also don't pay property taxes. They're like, we would love to build those things. We don't have any money to do that. (laughs) But these are the pieces that should come together because you go to the endowment at Colonial Williamsburg and say, hey, guys, you want tourism to go back up to what it was before 2008 and 2018? Then you got to start making the entire entity better. You get more college students, you get younger people to work downtown, mm-hmm. all these pieces. Universities have a good 
I can say, I mean, resorts like Disney and also universities actually have a pretty, in terms of their own circulator systems, So in some places like Ann Arbor and so forth, I mean, they're moving like a lot of people. So there's definitely, you have enough institutional mojo there to basically put together circulator systems that could be very effective. But again, you'd have to do things like make sure that it's not too easy, you know, <laughs> to drive to the, whatever the, the wind Dixie or whatever it is yeah. there. Right. And, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, you, you should be, you could be such a beautiful and wonderful bikeable, walkable, tr- enough be. transit for those who need it um, kind of system. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it it's easy to walk in and show them like a fancy PowerPoint and say make this four hundred year old town sort of give it fiber internet and make it super bikeable yeah. and that's great but or put the work, charging stations in yeah exactly but not too many you know that's it's complicated <laughs> but it is doable and again my goal is to try to keep finding as we talked about a little bit offline like what are lowest common denominator pieces of the puzzle that we can transplant from city and state to state to say like this works these arguments work these are the pieces that help fund it. To try to again have these things build on each other, because I think again, livability. What you bring up there is, I think for a city like yours, is the livability factor sure. can be a very big one to kind of leverage transit and so forth. I mean, if you really have the kind of, if if because a lot of times traffic can be, even though you live in a small place because you have limited roads, it could be just yeah. awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, my perspective is skewed coming from Los Angeles. You know, if you're yeah. four minutes late to preschool, it's going to take half an hour to get there, but. <laughs> anyways, anyways, there's, there's, I think there's some glimmers out there, but it's going to be a lot to undo, you know, your 125,000 book. We're going to have to make it a thing of the past here, Nick. All right. You've spent enough time. I got a couple questions I'm going to ask you that I ask everyone, and then we're going to get you yeah. out of okay. here. Does that sound good? That's great. Nick, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the quote unquote power of change or the power to do something that you felt was outwardly meaningful? It could have been Recently, it could have been your book, it could be teaching, it could be any of these things. Hmm. Where was sort of the spark for you? I mean, I was involved pretty early in college in the 80s in the Earth Day organizations um, and helped organize, this is in Madison, Wisconsin, Earth Day celebrations, which, you know, uh, the, it's so it's such a different time where sure. really environmentalism was, you know, such at the margins. But we would put those together every year. And that was, you know, it was... Uh, both my own awareness and our ability to drive other awareness around that. So I feel like that's kind of where the idea that you can organize and develop something of meaning for people on a social issue of importance. I would say that though, I mean, certainly through teaching, I feel like that's sort of my impact. I've taught so many thousands of students now and you know, the, the teaching piece of it, I've been very lucky in the sense that I'm able to teach in areas like urban planning and urban affairs and so forth, which, you know, you're able to bring a kind of consciousness to students about things like longstanding racial disinvestment um, and inequity, uh, but also opportunities for making better places, right? Uh, By showing them what's going on in Europe or in certain cities, there are tremendous opportunities there. So I think that teaching remains, you know, an opportunity for so many people uh, to basically get ideas in circulation that can really help consciousness in that way. So, I love that. That's fantastic. Nick, who is someone who has positively impacted your work in the past six months? I mean, I was able to bring the book to more people's attention because like of David Zipper, who's a freelance writer with Bloomberg and so mm-hmm. forth. 
Otherwise, you know, this is a pretty, you know, it's a, it's a university press book, which is great. His basically attention that he paid to the book and Fox and Bloomberg was able to basically help create, uh, you know, an audience for what was really a, you know, something that I felt very strongly about and researched a long time to a wider audience and, and tell a story that I think needs to be told right now. And I, and I was so grateful to him because we were, we're going through a period where almost every state has to decide whether they're going to fund transit. And so it's nice to be able to say, well, here's, here's what happens if you don't. <laughs> My book's a warning, right? Yeah. So I owe him a lot. And I think actually the country owes him a lot in that way because he's out there on a lot of issues, you know, and in terms of environment, I think he's got a lot of sense about like what could really have impact, you know, whether it's he's big on e-bikes, uh, he's somewhat skeptical of, you know, the electric car is going to solve everything, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and so a lot of how reshaping cities can be better places. So I, I definitely admire his ability to communicate with a wider public in that way. I love that. The e-bikes thing is a whole thing we haven't even dug into. I love it. I have one. I love it. Love it. I'm obsessed with it. Um, it's my last mile solution. It's how I go to my train station. I, love it. I live up a hill. And so it's a really big hill. And so in the night, it's like, turn it on. Oh yeah, 100%. It's cheating. It's, it's fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, it's wild to look at things like the the subsidies in Colorado that start in Denver and they've I think they just passed the entire state yeah. of Colorado for yeah. e-bikes. They can't they literally cannot keep these uh, subsidies, I guess, in stock as you were. It's pretty it's pretty incredible. Um last one, what is a book you've read in the past year or so that has opened your mind to maybe a topic you hadn't considered before or has changed your thinking in some fundamental way or at least challenged i'm a little old for that <laughs> i'm a little baked in i don't that's know fair. That's fair. <laughs> totally changed my thinking i don't or know. just a new idea where you're like well shit i'd never read about this what uh, that's exciting. i mean i like the jeff speck you know the walkable sort of the i'm trying to get give, give me the name the title in a minute i was just rereading that walkable city. yeah it's I not just walkable city right. isn't that what it I, is I think it walkable, walkable city thing. rules yeah, Walkable City, yeah. yeah, yeah Which, yeah. by the way, I, I can't... Walkable City rules, it's still so great. Yeah. Funny, uh, totally on target. Um, you know, his description, for instance, of like state highway agencies and mm-hmm. their ability to ruin cities, love it. And it's not just highways, them, but actually how the state routes mm-hmm. that he talks about, because he's done a lot of this consultancy on walkability. <laughs> you know, he's like, I know it's bad. You know, he's like, he says, like, I know it's going to be bad if I have to deal with like state officials on like a route because while well, they're interested is getting, you know, cars from point A to point B. I, I highly recommend that book and, you know, to rediscover it again. He's put a new, um, like an afterword, an update that's also very good. So I definitely feel like that's still like one that everyone should read if they want to get into kind of the transportation alternatives sure. kind of element. I love it. Thank you so much. Your book is The Great American Transit Disaster. It is a light beach read for everyone. There it is. Um, (laughs) Highly recommend it. I mean, just so many footnotes. It's great. Um, Thank you for, I mean, truly the work that must have been required to to do this is is unbelievable because the writing the book is is hard, but it is the easy part. I mean, truly, you you pulled it all together. So we appreciate that. Um, Thank you for your time. And yeah, go check out the book. And, and we've also got some other resources we'll put in the show notes for folks so they can really get a good education on this before they go start protesting. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It, it matters to understand the complexity and choices that got us to where we are so we can undo them as quickly as possible. That's it. Important Not Important is hosted by me, 
It is produced by Willow Beck. It is edited by Anthony Luciani, and the music is by Tim Blaine. Uh, You can read our critically acclaimed newsletter and get notified about new podcast combos at importantnotimportant.com slash subscribe. Uh, We've got t-shirts and hoodies and coffee stuff at our store. I'm on Twitter at Quinn Emmett. I'm also there at, uh, what is the new one? Blue Sky, whatever it is. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, Search me or important, not important, wherever you want. Uh, You can send us feedback or questions or guest suggestions, whatever you want, uh, on Twitter or to questions at importantnotimportant.com. That's it. Thanks for giving a shit and have a great day.